Hello everyone, welcome to episode 154 of the Enfocus podcast. I'm your host Andy Corrigan, with me as always is Andrew Brown. Hello. And Tori Wassana. Hello. Uh, and this week we're going to talk a bunch of uh, fantasy nonsense, a lot of D&D talk. So we're going to touch on uh, Kingdoms of Amilo with my closing thoughts. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, Shin Megami Tensei 3 Nocturne HD Remaster. Uh, Andrew's going to talk to us about the uh, Disney Classics collection, Aladdin and the Lion King. Uh, and then Andrew's going to fill us in with why he's finally quit Animal Crossing. So uh, yeah, uh, let's get on with it and we'll get on to the updates from the previous episode. <laughs> Okay, Andrew, you finally kicked the habit and dropped Animal Crossing. I'm guessing you have some closing thoughts on this and uh, interested to hear uh, what was the the final nail in the coffin. Well, the final nail was that I've, I've done almost everything. <laughs> you know, it, Animal Crossing is a game that it's, it's not impossible, but it's in, extremely impractical to do everything there is to do. But I, I feel I've accomplished all the major goals uh, I didn't. I haven't missed a single day since it came out. I've played every single day and done, you know, the basic chores, digging up all the fossils that show up every day and banging all the rocks on my island. And then I've had smaller projects that I've done over time, which has led to this long list of things that I've accomplished over the past year and two or three months. Uh, I, I paid off my house entirely. And in addition to that, I have 21 million bells in the bank and 500,000 Nook Mile points total stocked, which uh, I don't know how many more bells that would be if I turned them in for the bell tickets, but who cares? I have 21 million bells. I certainly don't need any more than that. I captured and donated every bug. I caught and donated every fish. So that's completely filled in the... Critterpedia logs in the phone and has completed the museum wings for those two categories. I got a five-star island rating, and through doing all of those things, I earned all of the golden tools. I got the top prize from the Happy Home Academy, and I've got all those trophies and plaques displayed in my house. I earned every reward from every holiday, and I've just got them all stored in my, my house storage, <laughs> collecting dust. I collected every KK Slider record twice because I wanted every record to be in my my in-house music systems. And also I wanted to display all the records on one of the walls in one of my rooms. So I did that twice. <laughs> and I made 10 million bells from the stock market, which was really annoying because that meant having to do a lot of tracking turnip prices on Twitter and begging people to let me onto their islands and they usually had some thing they wanted me to do for them for me to be able to do that usually donate something to them it was obnoxious and the online interactions in Animal Crossing especially if you're doing turnip trading take forever so that was kind of obnoxious and I was super glad when I didn't have to do it anymore <laughs> uh, there are still things I could do, but I'm just not going to because they will take way too long. I have to complete the museum art wing. Crazy Red, who sells the art pieces, shows up maybe once every two weeks, maybe once every week if you're lucky, and doesn't always sell authentic artwork and doesn't always sell artwork that I need. So uh, short of going online to trade for things that I want, which I, I just have no interest in doing after already doing that with 
turnips. I just, I don't want to do that anymore. Uh, it's a no thank you for me on that. It would be too much RNG. I would be probably keep playing for years to make that happen. Uh, there are two more sea diving creatures that I haven't caught yet, but I just, I just don't care about that because there's really no reward and nobody, nobody in game actually cares about it. I could complete all the Nook Mile challenge goals. I'm actually getting kind of close on most of those, but yeah, it's still more grinding. No, thank you. And uh, the big thing would be to collect every villager poster and portrait because you can get a poster just for having the villager on your island and then taking a picture with them at the photo studio and then you can buy a poster from your phone. And then the bigger one is the portrait, which you can only get by reaching a certain relationship value with the character. And I only have one portrait total of all the characters I've met, uh, but there are I think over 300 villagers now, so just getting all of those would take forever, probably the rest of my life, if I wanted to do it. And that, that's <laughs> kind of where I'm at at the game. Like, I, I just have goals left that would take a long time and a lot of RNG to get done, and I'm just like, you know what, that's fine. Uh, I got all the golden tools, which I think is like the major completion milestone. I'm done. I'm walking away now, and uh, I haven't <laughs> played it since... Wednesday night, maybe it was Tuesday night that I, I hit a five-star island and got all the other rewards that I hadn't done yet, and now nah, I'm just done. I'm done. So I have to ask, because when I finally decided I'd had enough and I didn't want to commit to doing this every day anymore, um, I felt awful for the first day afterwards. Did you feel any remorse? I felt weird the first day about not playing, and then since I've barely noticed, <laughs> I'm already... <laughs> I'm already putting that time towards more productive things I'd rather be doing. Yeah, I had like the a few days remorse and then after that relief, like it, it felt like a freedom of burden, which is a horrible thing to say about a game that you enjoyed, but you know, is what it is. I don't think any event's going to tempt me back either at this point, even if it's something new or yeah, I just uh I just ran out of steam on it. So that's Animal Crossing. Glad you're free now. Uh and we'll move on. Uh, so I, I finished uh, Kingdoms of Amalur. I said last week I was I was like a couple of missions from the end um, and I was going to do a, a run of the side quests uh, so I could play something else. I, I spent two days after we recorded last week just constantly going at the side quests after getting to the penultimate mission in the story. Uh, there are so many. Like the point I was at last week, I had 37 and every time I did one, I would end up with more because I would go to a location I hadn't been before. Uh, so it's kind of like the old, uh, you know, bottles of beer on the wall thing. So it's like 37 side quests to knock down, 37 side quests. Select one now, complete it all sound. Now there's 45 side quests to knock down. Bit tiring if you're just constantly doing the side quests, especially, which is my biggest complaint with Kingdoms of Armilla, is that the side quests of such an inconsistent quality, a lot of them are just, you know, go here, talk to someone, job done. And sometimes if you're lucky, you'll have to go back to the original person to talk to them too. Um, and there was one side quest in particular that just nearly had me quitting doing them outright, which was uh, you get to a city called Rithia, which is like, a, you know, a big pristine city. It's all about sticking to the red tape. They love knowledge. Prestigious city in this world. Uh, and one of the missions you get is to collect eight pages of a book and they are spread all over the city which is massive and every page is hidden behind a lengthy loading screen 
like it took me half an hour to do like a task that should have taken me 30 seconds and it was just like okay but i didn't know how many there were in total because it was just you know every time i got one it'd be like oh hey there's another one each time it was like well i've come this far i may as well see it through but like it was you know like 30 minutes of my life where i could have been doing something more more productive some of them are, are pretty meaty and you go to a dungeon and you fight your way through and there's an interesting interaction or boss at the end really inconsistent and you never know where that's going to fall um and as i said last week it definitely stands out in a, a post witcher world most of the rewards for these side quests are absolutely pitiful outside of xp and um, when we first spoke about this game on release we talked about the the dlc equipment that you get at the beginning and the impact that would have uh, on on the game Basically, I stuck with the DLC armor the entire game. I didn't find a single piece of armor that was beneficial over that. But the weapons was different. I, I kept finding better weapons, but the, the DLC armor is just like your one-stop shop. You'll never need to go back um, unless you want to change your class or you know, or change focus to from melee to, to magic or whatever. Overall, I had fun. Like The combat's fun enough, kept me going. Uh, the boss fights are... Uh, pretty fun although what i tended to do was uh, i saved the reckoning mode uh, where you you know you slow down time you do extra damage i kept saving that for boss fights and that that made them a little trivial in most cases occasionally i would uh, use it too early thinking it was an end boss but it was actually just a sub boss ahead of the main boss and then i'd be stuffed in the in the next one that's it. Overall, it's a fun game. As I said in the first week, I thought it was incredibly uh, quick-paced. I still think that, even with the amount of side quests I had to knock down. like Part of that is obviously down to how I was playing it. When Andrew spoke about it, he was he was doing it differently. He was you know talking to every character. Uh, I will say, if when you get to the bigger cities, I predict you will stop doing that. Uh, because, yeah, there are so many NPCs that you will burn out. <laughs> on that so certain are you yes yes oh yeah we'll just wait till you get to Rithia <laughs> oh boy you know overall it was pretty good it's it's uh you know it was the fantasy nonsense I needed at the time it delivered on that it goes through all the the typical RPG tropes you know you got the green foresty areas the rolling meadows you have the deserts the Mordor-esque uh lead up to the to the final boss if you're into something that's a, a little in that vein some high fantasy uh you'll you'll have a good time overall but you know it's got a a bunch of uh, era specific caveats to that just a disclaimer i didn't beat all the dlc stuff uh, my thought process on that was um a i'd kind of had my fill uh, and i'd played enough to be to know where i sat with it uh secondly when andrew returns to it i'll have something to do uh, so we can engage in conversation, uh, which would be nice for a podcast. Engage with Zorp. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, so Kingdoms of Amila. Done. Glad I played it. Would probably never play it again. Uh, so with that, that's the updates. Let's move on to the latest Switch news. Okay, not really news, more of a rumour. But uh, the rumours are swirling now about the Switch Pro getting announced before E3, uh, which would make that announcement like any day now. Uh, there were there are a lot of rumours that Jason Schreier had said it was going to happen like yesterday or the night before, uh, and that just wasn't true at all. So everyone's kind of 
uh, doing their own heads in with this one, I think. I did see some rumours just before we started recording as well about uh, Surface-style kickflips and uh, USB ports and Ethernet ports built in and all that kind of stuff. Basically, I'm taking it all with a, a grain of salt until we see an official announcement. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to see what it can bring. I'm definitely up for a beefier switch. Uh, I don't know about the other two. We haven't really discussed that. But yeah, where, where are you guys with this uh, impending announcement, apparently? I'm honestly really hoping that... I've heard a couple of rumors saying that the dock is getting the bulk of the upgrades, or it's going to be providing more of the power rather than just being what plugs into the TV. Yeah, I heard that. So the... Uh, the base model will be less powerful, but when you plug it into the dock, that's what's got the extra processing power. Yeah, I'd heard that. I mean, the one feature that I think the Switch would definitely benefit from, if if they're talking about 4K at all, uh, DLSS or deep learning super sampling, uh, in layman's terms, using AI to upscale an image so the hardware itself is only rendering so many pixels so it can pump out more pixels, higher frame rates, higher quality image, and then kind mm. of fill in the gaps with AI. Some, I, I, I honestly was expecting something like that for a Switch Pro. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's the natural progression for um, making up for weaker mobile hardware is filling in the gaps that way. I really hope that that ends up to be true. I have no expectations. I certainly believe there's going to be a Switch Pro at some point. I don't know if this is it, but this somehow feels like the most likely time for it to happen it just it feels like it's a good time for the switch pro to come out it's been a good four years since the switch launched and four to six years is about the shelf life of a platform usually about now is when we start hearing about the next version to come out and uh, (laughs) it doesn't seem possible but the switch has somehow reached that point already I'm nodding. No one can hear this. Yeah. But just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm. I'm excited. Uh, I'm definitely uh, up for new hardware. Like uh, the Switch's visual difference to the other consoles has never been a a big deal for me. The portability in most cases is worth the downgrade. I think it's a, a good time as well. Uh, the only thing that I think would put them off is that uh, Switch is still selling gangbusters. So uh, I my worry is that they would withhold you know until it until they start seeing that decline in sales but yeah it does it doesn't seem to be stopping anytime soon they've said they expect the switch to be an in active development for 10 years or so and that's about how long the game boys lasted so that's not impossible and i'm perfectly happy to keep playing indie games on switch and most of those especially the sprite based ones they don't need all that fancy hardware mm-hmm. technology that the other consoles use the switch is just fine for that kind of stuff and there's the whole mobile market which hopefully will start getting more recognition for the games it produces that aren't just you know gosha money grabs there are mobile mm-hmm. games out there that are like that they just don't get any attention so there's still a lot of places for games to come from they don't all have to be multi-platform releases and also, uh, I I did see a story about uh, Amazon had listed the 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 new Nintendo Switch Pro. Uh, like, pick a name, guys. I, I know it's probably a placeholder, but uh... <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. Amazon Mexico. But Amazon Mexico also previously 
pre-listed the Spyro Reignited trilogy just before E3, so they were right once before. <laughs> Maybe again. <laughs> and Walmart was the other big one, wasn't it? Spoiled all Bethesda's announcements. I think so. Switch Pro Rumors, uh, we wait with bated breath. Uh, also, we're into the like pre-E3 announcement period where companies are doing their own thing and announcing some you know, le- less jazzy uh, announcements. So uh, there was a Sonic stream, which was 90% worthless, but they announced a, a brand new Switch project, which will come in uh, 2022. Uh, but they did announce that Sonic Colors is getting uh, an upgrade, like a complete edition, and that, that, that'll be coming to Switch. I dabble in Sonic. It's largely not very good. Uh, this is meant to be, you know, historically one of the the better ones of the recent releases. So, you know, could be decent. Dragon Quest. They had a stream. They announced that they're remaking Dragon Quest three in the style of Octopath Traveler, with color, much to the uh, delight of Andrew and Tori, uh, who are heretics. And uh, Dragon Quest twelve got announced as well. Um, did we have a platform for that, or was it just just the title logo i think it's just a logo so far okay so no no platforms confirmed not yet how are you guys with this one tori anything grab your attention there um i mean i'm interested in the series i played a fair bit of 11 and liked it and i just fell off it because i tend to fall off jrpgs way too easily (laughs) um but i i love the art style and the color and everything and yeah, color, actually. <laughs> I, I just can't stand the the brown and the bloom lighting and everything like that in Octopath Traveler. It just, it gives me a headache. I was really excited to see that art style, but with other colors. Looking forward to the Dragon Quest Three remake. I've talked before about how Dragon Quest Three is one of the most important JRPGs ever made, but it doesn't get the credit it deserves outside of Japan, because Japan is the only place in the world that actually really cares about Dragon Quest. But uh, Dragon Quest, it's doing better now, and Square Enix has, for a long time, been very vocal about how unhappy they are about how unpopular Dragon Quest is outside of Japan, and uh, there are lots of things that could probably be said about how Square Enix handles how they distribute and market Dragon Quest. That probably has a lot to do with that. But mm-hmm. yeah, uh, <laughs> I'm happy to see a remake of Dragon Quest three coming. Not the first time Dragon Quest three has been remade. I think uh, it was remade for the Super NES. There is that awful mobile version, which would be a remake since it's all new graphical assets. So this would be the third time it's being remade, which is kind of excessive. But that just seems to be the mode that Square Enix is in right now. They're just remaking old games because God knows they can't make good new ones. Dragon Quest 3 is never going to get the clout it, it deserves because people just latched onto Final Fantasy 7 as the RPG. But I said recently in our Discord channel that Dragon Quest 3 is to Japan what Final Fantasy 7 is to the rest of us. It's it's the game that made RPGs a thing. So I'm, I'm perfectly happy for any opportunity to get more people to play it in whatever <laughs> form. Cool. Uh, and I think that's it for the news, unless uh, anything's broken while we're talking, which we'll, we'll cover next week. So yeah, so let's move on to the things we've been playing.
Okay, first up in our cavalcade of fantasy nonsense, uh, I picked up Baldur's Gate Dark Alliance. I had a, a pretty big um, soundboarding rant at the end of the last episode where I was trying to figure out what I was going to play when, uh, and I was going to play Dark Alliance after the other Baldur's Gate games, but then Andrew said something which uh, stuck with me, which was me putting a 200-hour obstacle in my way of enjoying a shorter game. So I decided to make Dark Alliance my weekday game. Yeah, uh, I'm glad I did that because I'm having a, a pretty fun time with it. Uh, it is one of the most uh, PS2-ass PS2 games I've ever played. Um, I forget, Andrew, have you played it before? I played the GameCube version about 20 years ago and it was okay. Ah, yeah. The second I booted it up, I was like, this is absolutely the kind of PS2 game that I like. <laughs> So it's uh, obviously set in the Dungeons & Dragons universe. Uh, most of my experience with Dungeons & Dragons has been from actually playing Dungeons & Dragons, the tabletop game. We've discussed it previously. I've never been like massive into fantasy until recently, where I've been on uh, a big catch-up thing ever since. Uh, Final Fantasy was always the, the outlier to my uh, no-fantasy rule. It is a top-down action RPG that's kind of in the vein of Diablo, but it, it does a lot of things differently. In this one, you pick one of three characters. There's a, I, I'm playing as Vaughn, who's the ranger class, who can do both uh, melee, and uh, he, but he's stronger with a bow and arrow. Uh, there's an elven sorcerer and a dwarven fighter you can choose from, both of whom I'm looking forward to trying after I beat it the first time, just to see you know, how, how much their combat style differs obviously the sorcerer is going to be the the biggest difference apparently you get to play as a famous dnd character drizzed duerden after you beat it uh, i think it's after you beat it anyway who's like a, a famous dark elf in the lore there's lots of novels written about him i have accidentally painted a minifigure of him uh, which is sat on my shelf behind me when it comes to selecting the characters, uh, I had a panic when I hit the character select screen uh, because it was a blur fest. Like, there, there was nothing visually taxing going on. It was literally like they'd taken, you know, the uh, four to three screen ratio and stretched it. Uh, and that had me worried about what it would look like into the game proper, uh, which was completely unfounded because it looks great once you get into the actual... Uh, game engine um and how it kicks off is your character arrives at uh, Baldur's gate and not more than 10 seconds after arriving they get robbed and nearly killed and they wake up in a local tavern the clientele and the owners sort of help you get back on your feet and give you some leads about how to get your gear back and and, and get revenge and then that spirals into a big uh, conspiracy full of uh, you know evils and classic D&D creatures. At the start of the game they explain the story through uh, a dungeon master who's like talking about your situation, setting the scene and the, the tone exactly as a, a good DM would do in proper D&D but it's a, that's been the only time it's done it and I kind of wish they'd lent into that a little more. And it made me think about how you know the narrator in Bastion about how that structure would make for a great D&D game like that narration style uh, obviously you know that's not a thing here that you know that I don't think they would have been able to do that or felt inclined to do that but like I can't believe no one's done that like uh, that would be really cool 
you get into the combat it's uh it's simplistic but like quite satisfying um so playing as uh Vaughn, i'm running out of arrows a lot so i'm doing melee combat mostly there's a good mix of you know just hack and slash and you know trying to time your blocks because uh nothing can penetrate your shield if you if you're blocking and just to highlight how effective that shield is there's a boss fight at the end of act one where your foe does massive damage with with their shield i'd run out of potions and i won the fight just by playing the long game <laughs> blocking for like nearly an hour and just chipping away whenever i had the like the minutest opportunity your health heals so that's also a good thing so you can just keep blocking until your health heals back up again like it, it's very slow but w- worthwhile if you don't want to start the boss fight again to help you with the combat you level up you can get new abilities new stats uh here you for vaughn uh who you know he's not a magic class he gets you can select a class feat every time you level up oh sorry you put points equal to your character level into a class feat uh, so one of them could be uh, fire arrows, you can get shocking arrows, then you get like passive ones which are like uh, buffs to stats or you know like giving you the ability to occasionally deflect a projectile, you know you get limited use of that uh, whether it spells or this, you know it's all managed by mana, uh, you've, got, you've got to keep on top of your health and your mana while you're fighting which and you can replenish them with either one of the bumper buttons, ones assigned to each type of potion. The biggest comparison I would make, particularly to Diablo 3, I know Diablo 2 is different and I've never played that, so I, I can't make that comparison. Um, but with 3, what? I'm kind of reckless. I've never played it, never had a PC that would play it. Shaking my head in silent judgment. You can judge all you like, Mr. Judgy. I do, uh, thank you. <laughs> um, so in Diablo 3, I'm kind of reckless. Uh, you know, and in that you can just hold the button down and you'll keep doing the ability. Dark Alliance is definitely more of a an incher where you you know you're slowly going through the the dungeons and trying to lure enemies away from their pack so you can tackle them uh, separately. Uh, I'm into Act Two now. I changed over to a different game after I uh, failed to get to the next checkpoint and got a bit annoyed. But I'm looking forward to getting back to it. I'll be a little less reckless when I, when I go there. Um, I'm really hoping they do a physical release of this because it's a really good port other than that weird uh, character select screen. Uh, it runs fine. I've had no technical problems. I haven't had any hard crashes. It also has a co-op, uh, local only, I think. I think you can also switch out characters whenever you like. But like if you do that like where I am now, I would have an under underpowered character. The other thing it seems to do as well, which which surprised the hell out of me considering the game's age, is when you're going through a dungeon, if you kill something, it stays dead and its body stays there. Uh, even if you uh, travel out to go restock on supplies and come back, they stay dead. It was one, one of those things, I, it was always a surprise when a PS2 game would do that. <laughs> but yeah, looking forward to playing more. I, I, I like this one a lot. The one thing I, I do like about it over... Something like Diablo, there's there's this really minor thing with Diablo 3 that, that kind of does my head in. How, like, you can, in Diablo 3, you can give your character whatever weapon, but the what actually happens depends on their uh, attacks and their abilities. So like, I could equip someone with a sword, but if, they're, if the ability is a scythe, they'll keep using a scythe, and that kind of, that disconnect bugs me. Whereas at, at least in this one, I'm actually using the, 
the weapon that I selected. You know, just a, a light overview, but pretty good so far. Uh, I think the checkpointing, if I'm going to be negative at all, is is kind of inconsistent. Like it's pretty generous for, through much of the first act, but there's a gauntlet before the act's final two bosses, which is uh, incredibly tiring. <laughs> Uh, it just goes on and on and on, and it's just this mixture of a lot of different powerful enemies. And it's a, <laughs> the other thing is it's completely an impractical dungeon design. Like it, it doesn't work as a world building sense either. It it's just there to cause you hassle before you get to the boss, um, and then he mocks you for it. So it's like, hey, you're the one that built an improbable dungeon. Uh, that's that's really my only negative is just uh, some inconsistent checkpointing, but it's it, it's pretty fun. So uh, yeah, when I uh, got frustrated with with dying in that, I wanted to take a break. I switched over to the original Baldur's Gate, uh, which is the CRPG, uh, which they released two years ago, uh, in the form of an enhanced edition. Uh, so there's double packs of all these uh, Beamdog engine games. There's Baldur's Gate one and two with the DLC. Uh, there's Planescape Torment, and I'm blanking on the game that comes with... Icewind Dale. Icewind Dale, that's it. And there's also a Neverwinter Nights port as well, which is a, a 3D game, which is... I don't think that's in the same engine, so we'll <laughs> put <laughs> no. that aside for the time being. No, completely different. Uh, yeah, so Andrew, you're playing uh, Planescape Torment, which I, you know, I started before, but I, I was playing it on the Switch Lite in bed and you know reading tiny text when you're already tired is a bad idea so that that got parked and um, the reason i opted for Baldur's gate is because it you know from research it's the one that starts with the most traditional D style you know setup um and it has characters i know so that was uh, one of the reasons i opted for that i believe planescape torment is meant to be more story focused uh and a, a little easier from what I've been told, but I, I don't know how you're going with that. It is very story-focused, and I've been able to get through almost every fight so far just using basic melee attacks. So Nice. Yeah. Uh, I, I can give you some insight on how different Baldur's Gate is in. Baldur's Gate is tough. So uh, you went through the tactic of playing Pillars of Eternity first, like playing a modern version to try and get your head around how the systems work. I think that's a good idea because I went into this blind and I have been struggling a little. Uh, so just uh, on any map, just walking a few feet after a successful battle can completely end you if you run into the wrong type of enemy. I've had a lot of the the weekend where I've been struggling to tell what's going on and where I'm failing when I have failed. Let's get into you know the technical aspects of D&D. So obviously everything runs on dice rolls. Uh, with real D&D, combat plays out like a you know like a turn-based strategy game uh down to you know the squares squares of movement the turn order and all that kind of thing and you know your different party members will have ability that abilities that will complement your your abilities these beam beam dog engine games just don't have that they play in real time the dice rolls are happening in the background you know you don't have that same level of feedback and you kind of just mashing your party into whatever creature you're against and hoping that you come out on top so there's a lot of trial trial and error like a large part of that was just me trying to figure out if i'd wandered into an area where i was at the wrong level if i didn't have the right party set up or both 
I'm starting to come to terms a little more with that now. Like I'll I'll have a stab at something I'm stuck on a couple of times and I'll back out and go do something else and find that to be a bit easier. Like it definitely doesn't have any of the the modern conventions like, you know, ideal mission levels or or anything like that. It's it's the sort of thing you need to feel out for yourself. What did help me with the combat though is I found the script menu hidden away in an odd place. I'm not sure if Planescape has a script menu. Do you toggle it on and off with the left joystick button? Uh, no. So the script menu. Uh, so I don't. This might not work in Planescape. Uh, it could be completely different. But you go into your like character sheet menu, and there's a customize option. Oh, if that's there, yeah. I haven't had to use it. <laughs> so if, if you go in there. Uh, there is a script menu, and if you go in, you can actually change the behaviors of your characters, but there's a list of presets based on, you know, ideal classes, so you can have, like, a, an aggressive bard or a passive bard or, you know, an aggressive wizard, blah, blah, blah. And then there's an advanced AI option where you can select whether they favor ranged attacks over uh, melee attacks or uh, if you have a rogue. They're, they're called thieves in this for some reason. Uh, if you have a thief, you can have them just constantly checking for traps, or you can have them uh, going to like uh, step into shadows, which is like a a, a stealth mode in D anD D. That that kind of helped me a little bit until I got my head around how the combat worked. So I was able to, you know, be a bit more hands on with the attacks they were doing and understand how they were working. That helped me a lot. And you can actually turn the AI off altogether, so you're just manually doing everything, but you can't quite make it a turn-based game uh, like the actual tabletop version of D&D. You know you can pause the game and give your party commands, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I'm just okay. talking more about how they behave manually. But then even when you pause, you know, it's not done on a turn order like in D&D. You don't have that same level of thought behind each move. You know what I mean? Do you have auto pause turned on? Yeah, yeah, that's all on. That's all on by default. Oh, it was it was off in Planescape, so I... <laughs> oh, it was. Wow. Okay. Yeah, you can you can change um, how that behaves as well because I've set it to pause every time I defeat an enemy, so I can you know reevaluate which one I should hit first or next rather. You can do it so it pauses at the end of each character turn, but that was kind of too much uh, and a little disorientating. But like for a large part of it, well, like once you get the hang of it, you can actually, as long as your party's set up right for the right type of enemy, you can walk into them, <laughs> and and it'll do the job as long as you've got the AI set correctly. Today really was my breakthrough day, and now now I'm really digging it. I'm into chapter two, uh, and I'm just figuring out, you know, like which quests are the the best ones to do for the levels that I'm at. I'm finding new party members around, so I've got a couple of like evil idiots on my party who you pick up you know as part of the the opening portion I'm, I'm one's a necromancer i'm waiting to swap him out for a proper wizard if i can find one i would also say as well like the the mission system is a thing of its time the, there's no mission markers you have to f- explore and figure things out for yourself um there's always the internet um which i don't think i would begrudge anyone using uh, for these if they're stuck on how to complete a quest I don't know about you, but I've been, uh, my character in Baldur's Gate is like, someone's trying to assassinate him, so I'll, I'll walk into a an inn and I'll just suddenly get attacked by <laughs> a, a would-be assassin. A couple of them have caught me off guard a couple of times because I wasn't prepared to fight them. 
Planescape. I think that one, that's the one where you start in kind of like the morgue, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And are you, are you in the open world on that now, or are you you still hanging around? In as much as there is an open world, most of the game takes place in a big old city. And really, once I got into it, I realized, oh, I have played this game before, only it was called Fallout New Vegas. So <laughs> I'm having a good time with it. I'm just, I'm not ready to talk about it in depth. Yeah, no, nah, uh, I am I just wanted to chat about my, my, my early struggles and like, not really expectations, but the difference between like actual D&D and the games that you use its rules, kind of. Uh, I think Planescape uses Advanced D&D 3, whereas Baldur's Gate uses 2. I have I no idea. <laughs> memory. I, I also worry about, uh, I think there's like a lot of assumed knowledge about, you know, enemy weaknesses and abilities and that kind of thing. And without a kind of, uh, you know, bestiaria or, or something like that, I, wor- I worry, you know, people who haven't played D&D might struggle with it. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes when you, maybe when you get to this one and, you know, one that's slightly less story heavy. Yeah, that's that's about it. Struggled for a bit and now, now I'm kind of digging it and I can't wait to get back to it. So uh, yeah, that's uh, that's it for the Dungeons & Dragons section. Sorry, we'll let you have a go now. <laughs> uh, from one dungeon game to a dungeon crawler, kind of. Kind of. Kind of, yeah. Uh, Shin Megami Tensei 3 Nocturne HD Remaster. Uh, so this is the series that spawned Persona as it's uh, as a spin-off. Um, and I, I gather this is the one where most of those... Uh, persona characters and the uh all, all the enemy types uh come from they're, they're all from this mainline series uh so how's that going for you yeah so mentally when i played it i'm much more familiar with the persona series than shin megami tensei so mentally i was trying not to compare them but i think it's going to be easier to talk about it because people are going to be more familiar with persona than uh, smt Mm-hmm. There are a lot of uh, familiarities. Um, if you're coming from Persona, the the battles might feel a bit familiar. Like the moves are similar names for different elements, and and you got your weaknesses and everything. But there is no social element to it at all. No time management. It all kind of plays out as is. Mm-hmm. The way that Personas work, and then demons, it's a little bit different. You still have to recruit demons by negotiating with them. Uh, you can also fuse demons, much like you can fuse personas to make more powerful ones. And there are specific combinations that will lead to like a very powerful and iconic uh, demons. So this is a Mons fighter. It's a what fighter? A Mons fighter. It's a Pokemon game. Sort of. So with persona, you tend to collect users of personas. Your party members are people that use personas. In Shimagami Tensei, your party members are the demons. So you yeah, have. So th- there's a comparison there, at least. Yeah. Um, persona is very much its own thing now. Um, mm-hmm. you're, you're always going to get people making the comparisons, but you'll see the DNA of it, but it won't be a, a, a direct translation. So if you're used to Persona, don't go in expecting a Persona game. You'll you'll see some elements that you'll identify, but overall, it's its own thing. So it it is 
still a JRPG, it's well known for its difficulty. Uh, there are many times where I played uh, SMT4 where I can't even leave the first area without dying on normal difficulty. Actually, I don't think there is a difficulty for SMT4. It's just what you what you get. And if you can't beat it, you just die. You can get one shot immediately. If demons get um, killed in battle, that's it. They're gone forever. Stuff like that. Luckily with SMT3, they've added a merciful difficulty, but I've actually found it a bit too easy where I can just hit it on auto and not use even any abilities in boss battles and just win. <laughs> Luckily when a demon is knocked out, they'll just be like fainted and you can revive them with items or at um, specific healing areas. It's got a, I can't remember the, the turn. I think it's press turn is what they call it. If you hit weaknesses or hit critical hits, you'll get extra turns on your turn there's a, a little symbol at the top right of the screen that shows you how many actions that you can perform on your turn and mm -hmm. you can distribute that across your um your, your party of four I, I find it quite interesting because it works the same way for enemies as it does for you so if your enemy misses they actually lose the turn that they just used up as well as an extra one so it will take up like two points instead of just the one. And that happens to you as well. And vice versa, if they hit one of your weaknesses, they'll get an extra attack in on their turn. So there is a little bit of forward thinking in that way. But at the same time, Merciful Difficulty, it doesn't come up all that much. Um, there is quite a big leap in difficulty between Merciful and Normal. I wish there was something in between, like just easy where, you know, you're still feeling the challenge and you're still engaging with the mechanics of battle, but not getting insta-killed is also good. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like they've uh, just made it too easy. Yeah, it's almost like story mode, which is fine if if that's what you want. But if you want to engage with the systems, it's not there. It's just that there should be an in-between. And I hope they, they recognize that either in this one or if they remake another smt game uh that's just the gameplay side of it um the story and the setting it's a hell of a lot darker than what you'd expect from persona within the first couple minutes the world ends like the entire world it's set in a version of tokyo called the vortex world um a ritual called the conception has basically destroyed the world with the idea of remaking it with a new reason, as they call it. Uh, and these reasons are kind of like godlike beings that kind of dictate the flow of order and chaos and weak and strong. Um, what's really cool, though, is that the Vortex world is literally just Tokyo, but mapped onto the inside of a sphere. So moving around the world, you're actually, you're moving across different areas of Tokyo that you might recognize like uh, Shibuya or um, there was also Kabukijo in there. 
but it's all mapped into the inside of a sphere where all of these different um, parts of Tokyo are kind of separated by desert. That's your overworld. Uh, you actually move across the overworld. You don't see the character while you do it. It's just like a little pin that moves around over this mm-hmm. overworld. I don't know. I think that's, I don't know if it's a stylistic choice or if it's just a technical limitation from, because it is a PS2 game. But um, luckily, once you actually approach a, a section of Tokyo, like one of the dungeons, it goes into a third party, uh, third person perspective with the character behind the character, uh, the camera behind the character. And if you've played, I, I think it resembles more Persona 4, not so much 5. 5 felt a bit more open, but Persona 4 was a lot of corridors. Even um, Tokyo Mirage Sessions, if anyone's played that, which is probably a niche title. It's got that sort of grid-like design, and there are there is puzzle solving to progress through the dungeons as well. Not a huge amount. Uh, there was one dungeon in particular where you kind of move between two versions of the same dungeon and it will flip vertically and there are holes in the ground or in the ceiling so you can move between floors that way but it changes the um, the layout by like just flipping it so you have to kind of think uh, with that um, to move through to get to specific areas to flip switches to open doors it was a bit mind-bending it was uh, very tricky. So you play as a character called whatever you want to call him. In game, he's known as the Demi Fiend. So as the conception happens, it happens in a hospital where you and two friends are visiting your teacher. Um, but that hospital also happens to be the place where the conception starts. So everybody inside of that hospital which is you, your two friends, the person who initiated it, and your teacher. All all of you survive the conception. Everyone else outside of it dies. So you as the Demi-Fiend, you are revived, actually. I, I believe you die, and then you're given the essence of a demon. So you're half demon, half human. So you have very unique powers in this world. Everybody else who survived, as well as other characters that just seem to exist in this vortex world, are all trying to gather a certain uh, essence to summon one of these reasons to rebirth the world. So you do come across your your, um, school friends and the teacher again as you move through the world and trying to unravel what the hell happened what the hell's going on and they all have their own goals to rebirth the world it deals with a lot of um i mean the idea of demons in general there's a lot of you know western christianity influences in its presentation and its themes i'm not smart enough to even try to unravel them on the podcast today (laughs) Um, there are hints of it in Persona but I think it's a lot more evident in 
SMT, where the whole point of it is inspired by the Bible, basically. Uh, there are multiple endings depending on which reason or which character you back up. Uh, so you can support different characters and their reasons. And uh, uh, I think there's even an ending that's in a... It's a tricky director's cut sort of situation where the West got the director's cut and never the original. But Japan got the original and then a director's cut that adds uh, an additional ending as well as Dante from the Devil May Cry series. <laughs> that's where the meme comes from is this game. Um, there's a character that you fight. It's like a side. It's not really story relevant, um, but you can replace him with Dante and fight him. I haven't done that yet, but I want to do another playthrough to get more endings and probably try and test my uh, ability to play on a normal difficulty. But we'll see. On top of that, while the game is remastered from the original PS2 game, it's mostly textures and models. Cutscenes are not remastered. They look like they're still like a narrow 4 by 3 aspect ratio. Uh, and the music. Uh, great music. Poor quality. It's not been touched up at all. Uh, it's a very striking art style. I've always been drawn to the way that they draw eyes in the smt games it's like very heavy um eyeliner all around yeah overall i think they're asking a bit much for a remaster for a ps2 game that they don't seem to have really touched up that much it's still locked at 30 frames per second the cutscenes aren't touched the music sounds a bit hazy but as a game, I would probably highly recommend it. Um, if you're not a big JRPG fan, definitely give Merciful a try. But yeah, I think this is a tough sell for fans of the game before this release. It, it just doesn't seem like a... Because it's $100 for the deluxe edition here in uh, Australia. Um, which comes with a few extra goodies, but nothing... That changes the game. I think it's 60 or 70 for the base version. If you're interested in the history, like if you're a Persona fan and you want to understand where the series spun off from, maybe wait for a sale. Uh, I don't regret buying it for full price, but yeah, I can see that there's a, a few disappointed people out there with the quality of the actual remastering. That seems to be a the big sell of it. Yeah, I'm in that thing where the only reason I'll buy it is because I'm panicking about the stock situation. Because it doesn't seem like the sort of thing they would press a lot of. Which, I, in discussion, that's the same reason Andrew bought it. Yes, I yeah. did. Uh, one of the uh, video game deal trackers I follow said, you should buy it because they might run out of stock. And, you know they're trying to sell me stuff that's how they make their money so i fell for it though i bought it and if it's still going to be available for years and i can get it for 10 bucks in black friday 2022 i'm going to be pretty annoyed with myself but oh well <laughs> it wouldn't be the first game i've bought just to own it 
because I haven't started it yet. Don't know when I'm going to start it. Have no great desire to play it, but <laughs> oh well. <laughs> uh, okay, so moving on. Uh, the last thing we're going to talk about um, isn't really dungeon related. You know what? Uh, the the genie's cave would be considered a dungeon. I'm going to go with that. There's an entire uh, sultan's dungeon level. Yeah. Okay. Then it works. <laughs> Um, so, Andrew, you've been playing uh, Disney Classics Collection, which has multiple versions of Aladdin and The Lion King, including SNES versions, Mega Drive versions, Game Boy versions, and, and all that. This is uh yeah interesting-looking package. Uh, I think my wife bought it when it was on sale last. Uh, yeah, how are you finding this one? Well, I picked this up last black friday where it was twelve dollars which is is a good deal for this package and i've seen it as low as twenty dollars since but not that low but i'm sure it will drop that low again in this coming black friday and it's a collection of like andy said a bunch of different versions of the same game that were available in the 16-bit era they're adaptations of the aladdin and the lion king movies into mascot platformers which was the big thing in the 90s if if you were a reasonably popular property or if you were a property that the people who owned it expected to be big you could count on getting some kind of platformer video game made for yourself the disney ones especially everything got a disney platformer in in the super nes and genesis slash mega drive era and they were actually had a pretty good reputation behind them uh, especially Aladdin, which was one of the best-selling Mega Drive games at the end of its life, and it totally deserved to be. There are multiple versions of each game that you can play through. They're all pretty much the same game, but it's nice to look at the different versions and how it progressed. And there's a final cut version of Aladdin. I haven't played that yet to find out what's really going on with that, but uh, that seems to be some sort of fully remastered version of the game that might look a bit nicer. I just wanted to play the old Sega version of it because it's a classic and uh, it's still good today. And there are different screen options you can play with it too because these were old old 4x3 games. You could play it in a regular size mode which more most closely resembles what the game played as in its original aspect ratio or you can expand it out so that way it touches the top and the bottom of the screen but there's bars on the side or you can play it stretched if you play it stretched you're a monster unsubscribe i never want to hear from you again <laughs> agree first game i want to talk about is going to be aladdin this is the genesis slash mega drive version there was a super nes version of aladdin but it was made by a different company it's actually a completely different game and is not part of this package it's a mascot platformer it's actually quite a good one uh, it's got really good animations that look very genuine because they were sourced straight from the films the people who worked on this game actually worked directly with the animators of the aladdin film to get this game made so it looks amazing uh, even today the animation is still great it's also got very good music recognizable recreations of the film score done by tommy tallarico who was a big name in video game music and still is to this day aladdin is you know of a moderate difficulty there are a few Areas that are rather difficult, but it's not anything that can't be worked through with practice and effort. Uh, the hardest level is probably the escape from the Cave of Wonders, but 
it's pretty easy to stockpile extra lives in this game because you can find these red gems throughout all the levels and there's a merchant who appears in most levels that you can actually buy extra lives from for a mere five gems you can also buy wishes from the uh, merchant for 10 gems and those let you play like a slot machine game at the end of every level but that's a waste of money don't spend your money on wishes spend them all on extra lives which are cheaper and actually are worth more than the wishes it's a weirdly paced game it follows the story of the movie pretty closely to start out and then when you get to the cave of wonders and escape from the cave of wonders after you've met the genie there's only two levels left even though there was still two acts of the movie left after that so it's kind of weirdly paced because it, there's actually a lot that's been cut out. A lot of the characters are cut out. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit because that also relates to things that happen in The Lion King. And then there's The Lion King. And this package has the Super NES and Genesis Mega Drive version of The Lion King because unlike Aladdin, it actually was made by the same people. So it's the same game on both platforms, but subtly different in the way they they look and sound because of the the hardware differences between the super nes and genesis version and if you really care to see what those differences are this is a really good place to see those because they're both here <laughs> it's also just a mascot platformer and it has animations that are good and they look good but they don't feel as authentic because this game wasn't made as in as close a relationship with the animators as the Aladdin film was. And the same goes for the music. It's recognizable from the film, but it's often inaudible. I could barely hear the music on some tracks, and it's just there's just some quality to it that just doesn't make it as memorable as Aladdin's soundtrack was. Aladdin's soundtrack is considered a, a 16-bit classic, and I, I attribute that probably mostly to Tommy Tallarico's participation, which I don't think he was involved in The Lion King. I checked his discography, and I, I didn't see it listed there, so I don't think he worked on this game. The thing about The Lion King that if anybody knows anything about it today is that they know how hard it is. It's a really, really, really hard game, and you can't... <laughs> a big part of the reason for that is you can't actually stockpile lives in it the way you can in Aladdin. There is a mini-game you play between each level with Timon and Pumbaa where you gather bugs, which is the best way to gather extra lives, but it's not just a constant source of new extra lives the way it is in Aladdin, so that makes things much harder. And then there's also the infamous second level, Just Can't Wait to Be King, which is this obstacle course just decked out in pastel colors, and there's a Battletoads style vehicle sequences on the back of ostriches where you have to jump over obstacles and the obstacles come at you really fast and you're supposed to jump over like these bright pink baby hippos which are cast against bright red skies and grass and it's just almost impossible to see the dang things and then you have to jump over Birds' nests, which again come at you really fast and blend in with the background so you can barely see them. The story is that Disney didn't want people to just rent this game and beat it during their rental period because it is a fairly short game, as most platformers back then were. So they had the developers make the second level that hard to get through, which it is. Uh, I couldn't, I thought for sure when I sat down to play this, I was like, you know, 
I was nine the last time I played this. That's probably why I thought it was so hard. It's like, no, my memory of this was pretty distinct. <laughs> this is a freaking <laughs> BS level hard game, especially that level. Uh, but then I got past it. Turns out the rest of the game is just as ridiculously stupid hard, <laughs> especially the Elephant Graveyard, which is the very next level right after that, where you play as baby, well, not baby, you play as young Simba, who has really no attack except to jump on enemies when they're stunned, and you have to get through just wave after wave after wave of hyenas who you can only hurt after they try to attack you twice, and their attacks are hard to dodge, and quite often in this level they attack you two at a time so when you have one in a vulnerable state the other one is in the middle of attacking you so you can't even hit the dang things in the first place the elephant graveyard is even worse than just can't wait to be king and then it went on from there with uh random falling rocks in the thorn thicket like you remember that scene in the movie after scar tricks simba into thinking he killed his dad and he runs away into the thorn thicket and the hyenas chase him. You remember the falling rocks in that sequence that always fall in Simba's head? No, that didn't happen in the movie. Well, it <laughs> happens in the game. And all through that level, there are just falling rocks just dropping on your head, just appearing from the sky, just dropped on you by an angry god for no reason. It's bizarre. <laughs> and then after that, you get to Hakuna Matata. You know, Hakuna Matata, it means no worries. It's like the happiest song in the movie. Yeah, that's a freaking hard level, too. I don't know what was going on with this game. <laughs> I guess they went way overboard about making this hard, so that way nobody could beat it on a rental. This, uh, 90s game design was just something else, man. You really... Kids out there, you have no idea how good you have it with platformers today. We are in a golden age of platformers right now, and the kids don't even <laughs> realize it. <laughs> Uh, the game does get much easier when Simba ages up into an adult because he gets more attacks, quite frankly. And But then the, the level design gets really boring from there. Like The second to last level is literally just a maze of caves you have to wander through. Almost no platforming to do, and all you do is just fight hyenas who are now much easier to fight because Simba is an adult and can just smack, him with his, smack them with his claws and they go down much easier. I've done the thing I do where when I don't like a game, I talk about it much longer because Aladdin is the great game in this package. It still holds up really well today. Looks great. It sounds great. It's a wonderful platformer. The Lion King is just a, a pile of crap. It's a bad game. <laughs> <laughs> These games are both really their products of their time. Even Aladdin, as good as I think it is, you know, it's a mascot platformer where, like I said at the start, every game in this era, if it got a game made at all it was going to be a platformer because that was that was the hot game at the time and they were easy to make and also products in their time and that there are like there are no women in these games <laughs> like jasmine shows up in a cutscene in aladdin and then she shows up at the at the end just before the credits start to give aladdin a kiss that is the extent of her participation in this game in spite of the the pretty big role she had in the movie nala from the lion king not anywhere in this game so <laughs> that is very early 90s there as well where it was still assumed at the time only people who play video games are preteen boys and preteen boys don't want to see girls because girls are yucky so yeah disappointed not to see those characters but that's just the way it is 
there are other features. There's like a, a watch mode where you can watch the gameplay itself and you can actually jump in at any time. So that's one way you can get past Just Can't Wait to Be King is you can set the game for demo mode and then jump in after it gets past it. And both <laughs> games also have a rewind feature, which is super handy. You, you just hold down the shoulder button and the game rewinds. That was how I beat The Lion King because there was no other way I could have beaten that stupid hard game was every time i made a mistake i just rewound it and did something else until i got past it aladdin uh, i managed to beat without rewinding but um i have beaten aladdin a couple times before so i have some practice there <laughs> i wouldn't i wouldn't look down on anybody for rewinding on that one either because it's still a 90s platformer it's 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 perfectly beatable compared to the lion king but it's got some tough sections and there are save states as well, also helpful for getting through the games. So you can actually stop in the middle of them and take a break. Couldn't do that in the 90s. And there are achievements, although they're, they're not much to say. They're literally just achievements for beating the game and for beating certain bosses. You know, big deal. And there's a museums full of documentary video clips. I'm not sure where these came from, but they seem to be quite old. They're, they're in 4x3, so they were recorded for something back in the day, and they've made their way into this. And there's just hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of concept art in here including i found a really funny one from aladdin which is jasmine holding this just gigantic sword in a very suggestive way and i was like why wasn't this in the game because <laughs> I, I would love <laughs> to play a level with jasmine just holding this giant ass sword just killing something i don't care what it is that would have been awesome but all we get's a picture <laughs> uh, it's a good package i wouldn't spend full price on it i think it's like 30 dollars full price but and I don't think anybody is going to fall in love with these games today, but if you're like me and you played these games when you were a kid and you have fond memories of Aladdin and you have resentful memories of The Lion King as I did, you'd enjoy looking at these again, as I did. I totally did. I, I like this package. I'm glad I got it. And I've only beaten one of the game versions in each, but I'm, I'm totally going to return to them in future years to, <laughs> to beat the other versions that are in there as well. Nice. Yeah, one of those uh, interesting slices of history, but uh, yeah, mileage may vary. Uh, and that's it for uh, episode 154. Okay, folks, what are we playing in the coming week? Tori, I'll start with you. So I realized I still have two endings to Fire Emblem Three Houses I haven't seen. So thinking about jumping back in and trying to get at least one of them. Uh, I've also been thinking about that game again recently, but thinking about it and actually doing another playthrough is, uh, you know, two completely different things. So, <laughs> sure. <laughs> I also own this game. <laughs> uh, Andrew, what are you? What will you be playing? Well, I should mention uh, I was supposed to play Man Eater in this episode, but my delivery didn't even get shipped until this morning so <laughs> uh maybe i'll play man eater for next episode but the game i'm planning to play for the next episode is, is a new release from clay interactive the makers of don't starve and mark of the ninja it's a deck building proc gen game called uh griftland so it looks pretty cool i'll be playing that cool and me uh i'm just gonna keep going with my uh dathon unless something amazing sparks my interest uh, we're not far off some big Nintendo releases soon, so uh, yeah, definitely looking forward to covering those. Mario Golf! Um, yes, very soon. End of the month. Well, 
end of next month technically <laughs> still <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of N Focus. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps us to get noticed. And you can also listen and subscribe on Stitcher, Spotify, and other podcast services. Make sure to check out our sister shows, PlayState and Power of X, when it comes back, once we have our new host lined up. Uh, but both of those shows might be dormant, but they're not forgotten. Please stay tuned and watch this space. Be sure to join our Discord server to interact with the lively Game Podular community. Follow us on Twitter, YouTube, and at GamePodular.com for updates, news, and other content. Links are in the show notes. If you'd like to support our shows, you can buy us a coffee or become a Patreon. The details for both are on our website. Thanks in advance. This episode was edited by me, and you can follow me on Twitter at PlayCritically and read my long-form reviews at PlayCritically.com. Andy is at Flame Roast Toast, and Tori is at Stew2. That's S-T-W-T-W-O.